Good morning, church. Okay, we are doing a series of studies from the Gospel of Luke for those of us, for those of you who are joining us for the very first time. And today we are attempting to cover the entire first chapter. It's very long. I'm not going to do that, all right? So uh, instead, I'm just going to give you a quick summary of it. But I pray and I encourage you to uh, perhaps uh, read the entire chapter on your own if you have not done so. Now, allow me to uh, just read the first five verses uh, uh, from chapter one. Not that my message is based on the first five verses, but just to complete, uh, you know, uh, all our readings that we've done for today. Chapter one, verses one to five. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the very first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, let me begin the message by asking a question. What do Theophilus, Zechariah, and Mary have in common? What do the three have in common? Well, in the first chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke, the writer, informs us the background for this gospel that he wrote. And he tells us that it is written for a man named Theophilus. We saw that in verse 3. And it's very likely that Theophilus, who has the honorific title, the most excellent, the most excellent Theophilus, it is very likely that this man commissioned the writing of the gospel. He um, perhaps sponsored it. And so one could say that the gospel of Luke that we have today is uh, brought to you by His Excellency Theophilus. And so now why did he have a gospel written? Why did Luke write it? Now sponsors usually do it for self-promotion, but Theophilus had something else in mind. And Luke tells us, he writes this gospel so that, so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things he's been taught. Which means that Theophilus must have asked, how can I be certain of the things that I've learned? How reliable are the teachings of the apostles about Jesus? So Theophilus is a believer who, who has questions, just like you and I. Questions pertaining to the faith that we profess. Questions such as, is the man Jesus really the Son of God? How can I be certain that salvation is found in Him? And uh, do I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me? And so Theophilus asked because he wanted certainty. He wanted more explanation. And this is what makes Theophilus similar to Zechariah and Mary in the story here in Luke chapter 1. He's got something in common with the priest and the virgin, the two important personalities in the story here in chapter 1. All three people have this in common. They all asked, how shall I know this? How can this be? How certain is this? Now, perhaps you yourself have asked that question 
I mean, I did when I first heard the gospel that was shared to me in church camp. So I attended. When I first heard the gospel, I had for a moment doubted how God could just forgive me all my sins just like that. I questioned, can the one man Jesus cancel all my debts without, you know, payment plans? How could this one man pay for all my sins? And the answer that I shall learn is that salvation is God's supernatural work. Salvation is the work of God that He's done supernaturally. And where do we see that in today's passage in chapter 1? Well, firstly, we see that an angel was sent to announce God's salvation, right? We read of that. So you recall Christmas, so when we do the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, it's like Christmas again on January. Don't worry about it, because in some traditions, they still celebrate Christmas on January because they believe that the Magi hasn't arrived yet, right? I mean, the Magi couldn't have arrived on December 26, but they took time before they could arrive, right? So we sing jolly songs during Christmas, songs about angels announcing good news to shepherds, right? We sing angels we have heard on high. And so we sing them with glee, but we rarely stop to consider that angelic appearances are in fact frightening. Hmm? That whenever the Bible tells us of an angel appearing, the response is not, oh, hi, how are you? No, the response is always fear. It's trepidation because angelic appearances belong to the supernatural. And so supernaturally, angels appeared with a mission to carry out God's work. And here in chapter 1, an angel appears to announce God's salvation work unfolded. And so Luke tells us that during the time of King Herod's reign in Judea, well, there was a priest named Zechariah, and Zechariah was going about his priestly duties and was on one day chosen by lot to enter the temple in order to burn incense. Now, friends, when scriptures uh, tell us that a person was chosen by lot, all right, the intended message is that God determines the choice. Because Proverbs tells us that, you know, that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so casting lots may look like making random choices to humans, but in Scripture, casting lots is a means to determine God's will. And so Zechariah, the, the, the lot fell on him, which means that Zechariah was God-determined to enter the holy place. And so he would be there alone inside, burning incense. And verse 11 tells us that at the right side of the altar, an angel suddenly appeared and fear fell upon him. Why did the angel show up beside the altar? Well, he's got a message of salvation. Next slide, verse 13 and following. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, 
and you shall call his name John, and he will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, which means no beer nor gombucha. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so how is salvation a supernatural work of God? Well, an angel was sent to bring the message of salvation. Zechariah is to have a son. John shall be his name. John will have a similar role as Elijah the prophet. John will bring about a change of hearts in the people to make, ready, to make them ready for the Lord's coming. Now, this supernatural announcement by an angel confirms that the awaited Messiah is arriving. And his arrival is going to be preceded, preceded by the birth of John. And we know all these, why? Because an angel of the Lord said so. An angel who stands in the presence of God and an angel who was sent by God to bring the good news. Now, should anyone doubt that there was indeed an angelic appearance? You know, should anyone doubt that Zechariah just made up that story because there were no witnesses after all? Well, thankfully, for the people's sake, you know what happened? Zechariah was struck mute and perhaps even deaf in order to confirm to everyone outside who were waiting that Zechariah the priest did have a fearful angelic encounter and that Zechariah did he was given a vision a message of salvation that's why we read in verse 22 and when he came out next slide and when he came out he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and he remained mute. So salvation is a supernatural work of God because an angel was sent to deliver the message and the angel left Zechariah mute and dumb as a sign. Now friends, it was not just one angelic visitation. Luke tells us that about six months later, the same angel was sent by God to visit a virgin named Mary. Mary, who was engaged to Joseph. And so, please take note, two angelic visits in a span of six months, all right? And so that cannot just be a fluke. It shows us that God is really up to something. And next week, by the time we reach chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, uh, there will have been three angelic visits in a span of 15 months. Angels bringing the message of salvation from God, telling us that God is up to speed with His supernatural work to save His people. 
And so here, in similar fashion, you know, similar but, but different, the angel appeared to Mary and told Mary, You have found favor with God, Gabriel says, calming the frightened Mary. And he brings her the message of salvation. Next slide, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so there it is, the angelic messages of salvation culminating in the announcement of the coming birth of the awaited Messiah. They've been waiting for the Messiah. And finally, he is coming. His name will be Jesus. And he is God's son. The son who shall be king and whose kingdom will be forever. And so God's salvation work, my friends, is supernatural. How do we know that? Well, it began with the announcements, messages which were delivered by the angel Gabriel. It's supernatural. And then moving on, God's salvation work is supernatural. Why? Because, next slide, because God overturned the impossible. He overturned what was impossible and he made possible the impossible to show his power. So Luke began by introducing us to the priest Zechariah. And he tells us more about Zechariah. You know that Zechariah was married to Elizabeth, that both of them are, are old, that they are a righteous couple, that they are above reproach. That is that in everyone's eyes, they're known to always obey God's commandments blamelessly. Which means, too, that in everyone's eyes, Righteous Zechariah and Elizabeth must be blessed much by God. Say, blessings of prosperity or blessings of posterity. However, Luke tells us that does not seem to be the case. Why? Because in verse 7, he tells us, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And so it tells us that righteous people are not without problems in this fallen world. They have personal obstacles. They have personal challenges. But God's salvation work includes overturning what was impossible. I mean, it was impossible, humanly impossible, for an old couple to have children. That is why when the angel told Zechariah, that his prayer has been heard, and that his wife Elizabeth will bear a son, the priest could not believe it. He could not believe it. There he was, praying for God's people as a priest. And his immediate prayer must be a priestly prayer on behalf of the people. It could be a prayer for the redemption of God's people. It could be a prayer for the hastening of the coming of the Messiah. Zechariah's prayer is not likely his own personal prayer at that time because, you know, his own personal petition to be given a son, uh, certainly not at his old age. 
And so this explains why he found difficulty believing that the angel told him when he's told that he's going to be a father. Moreover, his barren wife is too old to have a son. But God responds to the prayers of his people for the purposes of salvation. And so God responds according to his time and his purposes. And so in answering the prayer of the priest for God's people, God also answers what could have been Zechariah's outdated prayer. Perhaps he prayed for a son when he was younger in life. God gives Zechariah and Elizabeth a son in their old age. And this son is going to play an important role in God's salvation plan. And the giving of this son demonstrates that God overturns the impossible. He makes possible the impossible. Now, side point, a side point that we can learn from Zechariah's answered prayer is that God does not, or rather God does respond to our prayers in the manner that we least expect. I mean, look at this account. The priest prays for God's people in the holy place, praying that the Messiah appear to redeem God's faithful, but God answers in the way Zechariah least expects. He gives the old man an impossible son, a son who is going to prepare everybody for the coming Messiah. So God does respond to our prayers, to the prayers of his people, in the manner we least expect. Just as how he did to Zechariah. You could actually even say that Zechariah's answered prayer was a double answer from God. And Zechariah did not expect it. Another side point that we can learn from here is for us to believe that God is able to make the impossible possible. I mean, Zechariah, of all people, should have known better that the Lord is able to open wombs of barren women. I mean, all he needed to do was just review his scriptures and look at the wives, the barren wives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at their wives, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. Look also at Hannah. They are all barren women, but whose wombs the Lord opened. Why? Because what is humanly impossible is not impossible with God. But Zechariah was not sure that Elizabeth would join the list of barren women who would bear a child. And so he wanted certainty. He asked, how shall I know this? How can I know this to be true? And so because of his disbelief, he was struck mute and dumb for a limited time. As a confirmation that the good news he heard was not a scam. It was not a hoax. Well, what he heard from the angels sent from God was true and would be fulfilled in time. And so we read that true enough, after a few days, his old wife, Elizabeth, conceived and rejoiced in private. 
for nothing is impossible with God. It is not impossible for him to open wombs, even wombs of women advanced in years. Now, in case somebody, you know, yawns at the news of barren women conceiving, in case somebody says that such occurrence are so yesterday, you know, there are many occurrences in Scripture, well, they better check out another supernatural conception. It's the one that's happening to Mary, a virgin, meaning single, never married woman who was engaged but not yet married to Joseph, Joseph who belongs to the house of King David. And so we read that the virgin was told by the same angel that she shall conceive and bear a son. And because this phenomenon, a virgin conceiving, was never heard before, Mary needed certainty, understandably so. And so she asked, verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Which means that like Zechariah, Mary looked at her circumstance. She's single yet to be married and so questioned the possibility of the angel's announcement. How will this be since I am a virgin? She asked. Next slide. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And so the angel provided an explanation and also an evidence, a proof. His explanation, it's not human conception because that's impossible. The conception is from the Holy Spirit and the child born will be called holy, the Son of God. That's the explanation. Evidence, well, look at your relative, Mary. Mary's relative, Elizabeth, also conceived in her old age. Now, Mary doesn't know it yet because Elizabeth confined herself. But she's already on her second trimester. And the angel ended by saying this. Next slide. For nothing will be impossible with God. Side point. Now, these two accounts of angelic encounters has invited a lot of questions and comparisons, right? If you, I mean, if you did that study in your, in your discipleship groups, so you probably may have asked, why did Mary have it easy with the angel, whereas Zechariah's, or Zechariah had it hard? Hmm? Well, Luke does not tell us why, and so there are many attempts to explain the different treatments of the angel. Some say, well, maybe Mary was favored by the Lord, whereas Zechariah, we were not told. Maybe it was because Mary never prayed for a child, because, I mean, she was single after all, but Zechariah must have asked for a child, perhaps in the early days of his marriage. And then here's another answer. If you want to make women happy, 
You could say, well, you see, men ask silly questions, but women don't. All right? But if you compare Zechariah and Mary's circumstances, on the scale of impossibilities, Mary would rank, Mary's circumstance would rank most impossible. Whereas Zechariah's case would probably rank on impossible. I mean, it's more impossible for a virgin to have a child than for a barren woman to have a child in her old age. So there are many possible explanations, but nevertheless, the point not to be missed is nothing is impossible with God. Salvation is a supernatural work of God because God made the impossible possible. You know, later in, um, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 18, Luke tells us of a man who came to Jesus to ask the Lord, what must one do to inherit eternal life? Now, the man asked the question because he wanted to be certain that he's got eternal life. So you're familiar with that story? You know, after all, he's obeyed the commandments since youth. That's what he told Jesus. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and the commandment to honor father and mother. The man has kept all of them since young. But Jesus pointed out the commandments' impossibility to save a person. Yes, the man has obeyed commandments 5 to 10, the commandments that concern fellow, the commandments that concern uh, a neighbor. But what about commandments 1 to 4, the commandments that demand one's love and exclusive worship to God? That is why Jesus told this man, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus pointed out his inability to abandon trust in wealth and to shift his trust in God fully. Jesus pointed out to the man his need to trust the Son of God by following him for eternal life. And you know, after Jesus told this to the man, we are told that those who heard Jesus, they were shocked that the rich man did not have assurance of eternal life. Why? Because it was believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. And so they said to Jesus, Luke chapter 18, verse 26, then who then can be saved? What was Jesus' answer? Jesus replied, next slide, what is impossible with man is possible with God. How is it possible that God could forgive all sins because of Jesus? How is it possible that one man, Jesus, could cancel all our debts without need for payment plans? How is it possible that Jesus can cancel all our debts apart from obeying God's commandments? Because what is impossible with man, that is to obey all commandments and attain salvation, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You know what's interesting uh, that 
you know that it's interesting that Luke recorded this uh, conversation between Jesus and this man who came to, to him? It's interesting because what does Luke tell us about this man? Hmm? Well, he's a ruler. He is wealthy. And he needed certainty about attaining eternal life. Now, if you're listening, does it ring a bell? Does it ring a bell? The most excellent Theophilus was likely a Roman official, perhaps a ruler. And of course, he is wealthy. He belongs to the equestrian class. And he also asks, how can I be certain of the Christian faith taught to me? And so the recorded conversation of the rich man and Jesus here tells Theophilus, hey, you're not alone. There was somebody like you who also had questions. And he got his answer. Believe in the Son of God, supernaturally sent by God. Believe that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And you need not walk away sad because salvation, after all, is a supernatural work of God. Third and last point. How is salvation a supernatural work of God? Well, the Holy Spirit filled God's people. So in Luke chapter 1 alone, the Holy Spirit was mentioned a few times. The Holy Spirit is to, for, for example, is to come upon Mary and His power will overshadow her. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and so she blessed Mary. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and so he praised God that God finally visited His people to bring about redemption. Even John was filled with the Holy Spirit, not from birth, but whilst in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. Hmm? That was why he gave the kick, remember? When uh, <laughs> he heard the voice of the mother of the Lord greeting his mother, as if saying, that's him, that's him, that's him. So you can actually say that John pointed people to Christ while he is still in his mother's womb. The Holy Spirit is very much involved in God's supernatural work of salvation. In fact, it is one important theme in Luke's gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life how Jesus would baptize believers with the Holy Spirit, and how the gift of the Holy Spirit will be given by God the Father. This theme of the Holy Spirit is carried further when Luke would later write the book of Acts. And he says in that book that the Spirit comes upon the church as the fulfilled promise of the Father. The Spirit comes to the church empowering the church to bear witness for Jesus. The Spirit comforting the church in the midst of her persecution. It is the Spirit who brought the Samaritans, the Gentiles, to the church. And so the message, I think, to Theophilus is that, yes, you are a Gentile, 
but you are part of the church. And it is the Spirit who gave God's people wisdom and enabling to serve one another. And so if Theophilus needed the certainty that believers like him have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, here is how Luke's gospel helps. The Holy Spirit is very much involved in God's salvation work. He is, from the very beginning, as seen in the lives of Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, John, and even Jesus. And the Holy Spirit still is in the lives of those who repent and believe in Jesus because he is the promised gift of the Lord Jesus. In fact, Luke ends his gospel with the risen Lord, comforting his disciples, comforting his disciples, and telling them that he is sending the promised spirit from his Father. And when he sends the promised spirit, they shall be clothed with power to preach repentance in Jesus' name to all nations. In order to reach people like Theophilus, like you, and like me. And so how can we be certain that the gospel of salvation is true? That it is not made up by men? How do we know for sure that we are not saved by good deeds? That we are not saved by obedience of commandments, but by Jesus alone? Well, Luke shows us in his first chapter that salvation is the supernatural work of God. An angel was sent to declare it. God overturned the impossibilities and made them possibilities. And lastly, God's Spirit, who now dwells in us, who repent and believe in Jesus, is very much at work from the onset. And so when you and I question because we need assurance concerning matters of the faith, we can always look at scriptures penned for us to find answers, to find guidance, to find assurance. And when we do so, we shall find that forgiveness, salvation, new life in the spirit is not a hoax, it's not a scam. It is the work of God, supernaturally, and made available by Him for us all. Let us pray. Lord, as your servant Zechariah praised you, we declare too that blessed be the Lord our God because He has visited and redeemed His people. You have shown mercy to us as you have promised to our forefathers. And we praise you that you have given us knowledge of salvation, forgiveness of sins, giving us who sit in darkness light, giving us life in the shadow of death because of your tender mercy in Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, who loved us, saved us, and given us the Spirit to be with us. We praise you. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.